It Was Almost Real, Episode 20. Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920, although honestly we sometimes go a little bit farther. And in this week's episode, I will be speaking about Sorokichi Matsuda, or as he was known in the United States for most of his career, Sorokichi Matsuda, who was an early Japanese professional wrestler started in sumo and came to the United States to learn American professional wrestling with the intent of taking it back to Japan. But before we get into the main content, I will go to the update portion. So this week I was supposed to welcome the prodigal son back to the podcast studio, but unfortunately stomach flu has stomped the whole family. So my oldest grandson, Solomon, got it on Wednesday and gave it to everybody with the exception of his younger brother Connor and his dad Caleb who now both have it as of Sunday the day that Caleb and I had set aside to record. The good news is Tuesdays are freed back up for both of us. Tuesday nights were not free for me for the last six weeks and that's normally the time Caleb and I would record the podcast So my hope is to get back to the twice a month schedule. I will guarantee that we will put out an episode the second Monday of every month, whether it's a solo show or it's Caleb and I back to doing the podcast. But with any luck, we're actually going to put out a second episode this month on March 27th. So I I believe our schedules will coordinate for that. And eventually my cousin's going to come back up to St. Louis and we'll get him on the podcast again so he can regale everybody with more of his stories about how he tried to get him killed at the wrestling matches back in the 80s. But before I get into the main content, I pretty much have to admit that I'm going to tap out on modern professional wrestling. I never really was an AEW fan. There were wrestlers that they had that I liked, but I don't care for the indie style wrestling doesn't mean I'm right. You know, you can think I'm out of touch and I can't keep up with the times. Well, that's fine if MMA went and it became something that I didn't find entertaining. I wouldn't watch it anymore either. So it's just not my cup of tea. And I don't think Tony Khan's a very good booker despite what awards he's won over the past several years. And as little as I think of AEW, I think WWE is even worse because they should know better. They've got people that could do it, but Vince McMahon just cannot keep his hands out of things. I think he has lost whatever he once had in his conduct over the last several years when it comes to how he conducts himself with employees and having to pay all of these, uh, not pay money and get people to sign non-disclosures is appalling. If he didn't own all of the stock in his company, this would never be tolerated in a normal corporation today. So the only storyline they had that had my interest was the bloodline, and they've blown that. So uh, 
I just give up on all of it. I'd much rather spend what little inner time I've got to watch entertainment, to watch MMA, and to research the topics that I research. So, tapping out on modern professional wrestling, please feel free to continue watching and enjoy it if you do. But life's too short. A friend of mine once said, life is too short to watch bad movies or read bad books. And I will go ahead and throw bad sports entertainment, bad professional wrestling, uh, bad anything. Life's too short. So if you don't enjoy it, quit watching it. So the topic of today's podcast is actually the topic of my next book. And I chose this subject to research for a couple of reasons. But Sorokichi Matsuda is, and even the story behind his name, I want to, I'm going to say what is out uh, in research documents I found. Uh, Sorokichi Matsuda's real name is, according to WrestlingData.com, which I put a lot of faith in, Kojiro Matsuda. I want to look and, and make sure that that's the case. But he was born around 1860 in Japan. And he came to the United States in 1883, late 1883, to set up a match with Edmund Bibby in 1884, which I've written about. But he was originally a sumo wrestler in a fairly uh, good stable in Japan. And his name was supposed to be Torakichi when he was in Japan, which is where the Sorokichi came from when he came to the United States. I don't know if he said his name was Matsada or if the... Because American newspaper reporters in the 18th century were not great about getting name spellings correct. It's a frustration when I was doing St. Louis history as well. You could read four or five different newspaper articles and the person's name would be spelled four or five different ways. So to find the true name was always a bit of a giggle. But his name in the newspapers throughout the United States was always Sorokichi Matsada. And that's what his name was on my website for the first several years because I didn't come across that, no, no, this was a mess up till several years later. But one of the reasons I wanted to research it is he came to the United States to learn American professional wrestling with the intent of trying to go back to Japan and establish professional wrestling in Japan. And eventually another former sumo wrestler would do that in the 1950s named Ricky Dozan. But Matsuda had the idea to do this, which I think is pretty fascinating because sumo wrestling so dominated everything in Japan at the time and Matsuda would not be the last wrestler to think about coming to America or to have been in America to learn professional wrestling and thought, oh, I could take this back to my home country, but it not be successful. Uh, Taro Miyake, who was a jiu-jitsu practitioner who fought lots of challenge matches and then actually became a professional wrestler, tried to take it back to Japan in the 30s, but there was just really no interest in it. And other wrestlers had tried too, but Ricky Dozan found the right formula in the 1950s. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to research Matsuda. 
The second reason I wanted to research Matsuda is I first came across him when I was researching uh, the book on Evan the Strangler Lewis. And that book, Evan Strangler Lewis, the most feared wrestler of the 19th century, the beginning of that book really focuses on the two matches with Evan Strangler Lewis had with Matsuda in early 1886. The first match was in early January. The second match was either in late January or early February. And I don't know what he did, but Matsuda really pissed off Strangler Lewis. Not Ed Strangler Lewis, but the original Strangler, Evan Strangler Lewis, in the first match. So when Lewis got his stranglehold on Matsuda, which is a version of the guillotine choke, front face lock and wrestling. It's not the uh, rear naked choke or the hadakajimi or the mataleon from jiu-jitsu. What you think of when you hear people say sleeper hold in modern professional wrestling? This was a front choke. When Lewis got it on Matsuda, Matsuda passed out and Lewis continued to hold it on until Matsuda's face turned gray and the referee literally had to pry Lewis off of Matsuda. And that's the only thing dangerous about a carotid artery choke. If when they go out, you let go right away, usually that's one of the safest submissions you can do to someone. Outside of a much older person, you might do some damage to their arteries and the veins in the neck. But in general, on most people, you're not going to hurt them. And why would you be choking out somebody who's elderly? I wouldn't know. So for most people, that's going to be one of the safest submissions that you can use. The only thing that's dangerous about it is holding it on. That's why they're barred in all the police departments in the United States is because officers who were either poorly trained or, I'm sorry to say, had poor control did not release these holds that they had on people after they went out. Well, that's dangerous. You can kill somebody depriving their brain of oxygen for too long. And that's what happened. The same thing could have happened here with Matsuda and Lewis. And Lewis was furious because the referee had to physically pry him off. Well, for whatever reason, the fans and promoters were interested in a second match between Lewis and Matsuda after this. Uh, you could call it a grudge match. So they went to schedule the match for like four weeks later, but they ran into their first roadblock. And this was a roadblock that would haunt Lewis for the rest of his career, particularly in Chicago, because these matches with Matsuda occurred in Chicago. That was one of the best drawing cities for Lewis. He normally drew crowds of three to 6,000, which was just phenomenal for the 19th century. 19th century professional wrestling usually drew hundreds, not thousands of fans. So it's one of his best drawing towns, but the mayor got involved because the mayor of Chicago had to issue a certificate for any sporting event that occurred in Chicago. And he only agreed to hold the match if the stranglehold was barred. And this would haunt Lewis for years to come. Most of his Chicago matches, the stranglehold was barred. When he wrestled uh, Martin Farmer Burns in the 1890s, 
the stranglehold was supposed to be allowed, but at the last minute, the new Chicago mayor, who wasn't the mayor back when all this occurred, jumped in and said, nope, if you don't bar the stranglehold, I'm not going to allow the match. So again, the, the match had to be, or you know what, I might be mixing it. It might have been the Indianapolis mayor, but whoever the mayor of that town was where that match occurred, that mayor jumped in and said, no, if the stranglehold's allowed, the match can't go on. So again, Lewis's toughest title offense, his pet hold was barred. This infuriated Lewis even more, and he already didn't like Matsuda. So when the second match occurs, almost from the beginning, Lewis takes Matsuda down and applies an ankle lock on him, and an audible snap is heard. A lot of people thought that Lewis broke his ankle, but Lewis had actually damaged his ligaments. Didn't snap them, but the damage he had done was to the ligaments in the ankle, and because the doctor in the newspaper the next day said, no, the ankle wasn't broken, but the ligaments were stretched. Yeah, stretched and sprained. It was soft tissue injury. And Lewis, though, <laughs> he broke his ankle because as soon as a snap was heard, he let go of the hold and then kind of walked away smiling until the fans all started booing and throwing their seat cushions. When the fans were unhappy in the 19th century and the early 20th century, a lot of them had seat cushions on those hard wooden seats in most of the auditoriums and stadiums and that. If they got angry, they would start wait, or winging those seat cushions towards the ring. So Lewis just sort of stalked out of the ring afterwards. Matsuda did wrestle a month or two later, but in the book I'm going to really pinpoint how long it was between matches because a lot of people have said that, oh, he faked this injury and everything. Uh, but th those, both, of those contest, both of those matches were contests. Uh, there was no working. Lewis was out to injure Matsuda in both of those matches. But again, a broken ankle would have been hard to work on a month later. I don't know that stretched ligaments are still going to be in that bad a shape a month or two after that match. But one of the things I wanted to do was narrow down how long it was. The other reason was Matsuda's career in the United States was relatively short. He arrived in 1883. He made his debut in January 1884. And he would wrestle for the next uh, seven, seven and a half years, almost eight years. He married an American heiress, but the marriage was not a happy one and only lasted a couple of months. And then he got consumption, which we know as tuberculosis. In the 19th century, they called it consumption because usually <coughs> rapid and sustained weight loss occurred along with the tuberculosis, and there was no cure. I think the first successful antibiotic treatment of tuberculosis wouldn't occur until like 1906, but it still wasn't widespread or accepted, I think until the, around World War II. So when you got tuberculosis in the 19th century, it was a death sentence. It's what Doc Holliday had and so many other uh, people had. And in the 18... 80s and 1890s, it was starting to become looked upon as an urban disease because it's spread by the coughing and all of that, and people living in close proximity to each other, there were a lot of people in cities getting tuberculosis. 
And if you got it, it you know, there was no cure for it. He is diagnosed with tuberculosis in 1891, and he would only live to 1892. Uh, he died pretty much destitute in New York, but he was so well-liked and well-known in New York in the Chinatown area. I'm sorry, Chinatown. He was so uh, well-respected in the Japanese community in New York City. Let me get my nationalities right here, sorry. That the community there actually paid for his funeral, paid for his burial. Uh, and so he didn't get uh, placed in a pauper's grave. He actually was taken care of. The last six months of his life, the basically the New York Japanese community supported him, kept him in a hotel in the Japanese area of town. And he would walk from the hotel across the street to his social club. But they said the last month or so, that was about all he could physically do was walk across the street to the social club. And that's actually where he ended up dying was in that social club. The walk across the street one day was too much. He fainted from it and he never recovered. So it was a relatively short career as well, but it was a pretty impactful one. So multiple well-thought-of professional wrestlers of that era, Jack Karkeek, Martin Farmer Burns, William Muldoon, all said that had Matsuda been bigger. So Matsuda was stood about five foot five. At his heaviest, he weighed about 180. He was like a barrel. But most of the time, he was 5'5", and he weighed about 165 pounds. And he was strong, and he was a very clever, slick wrestler, but he just normally gave up way too much size to his American opponents. And that's what really caused him to lose most of his matches. Burns and Karkeek and Muldoon all said, had he been about 3 inches taller and about... 15 to 20 pounds heavier, he would have been very, very difficult to beat in that era. So I'm hoping with the book, and I, I'm imagining it's going to take me about four months to research and write it, but it could take six. It just depends on how much information I find. I'm hoping to shed some new light on the subject. I'm hoping to write the definitive work on his American career here. And I hope to have that out, like I said, by the end of summer would really be ideal, but it could go into early fall, depending on how much I find. But Sorokichi Matsuda uh, was definitely a, a groundbreaker, and uh, he deserves something to be, to be written on his life and career. I wanted to review a wrestling program but I think I'm just going to review a match. So in the 1950s, wrestling from Chicago was broadcast through most of the country. And I don't know where they found them, but a lot of those matches still exist. The Chicago Film Archive has a lot of them, and they've put up most of them up on YouTube that they have. And so this is a rich version. I, I wish that I had exposure to this when I was a kid. Unfortunately, the only thing you saw when you were a kid was your local wrestling show. So from 1979 until 
82, late 82 or early 83, when we got world-class championship wrestling in syndication, all I ever saw was St. Louis wrestling. That's all that was available to us. And I know that other people around the country, as early as the late 70s, saw different wrestling shows on cable. But we didn't get cable in the city of St. Louis until 1986. So we had VCRs before we had uh, cable. We could trade tapes before we could actually see wrestling on cable. My uh, family down the country, they had cable in 1980. So I could go down there and I could watch Georgia Championship Wrestling when I was visiting, but you couldn't see it up here. In the Chicago Film Archive, and these are Fred Kohler's, so Vern Gagne it was Fred Kohler's big star in the 1950s. So there's lots of matches with Vern Gagne. But the guy that I was kind of interested in watching the match with was Vern Gagne had a match with Dick the Bruiser from I think it was the Marigold Arena but it, it was one of the Chicago arenas and I saw Dick the Bruiser when I first started wrestling in St. Louis 78 79 whenever it was he was still a big star with the St. Louis Wrestling Club even though he was in his mid to late 50s at that time uh, probably mid 50s and he definitely looked like an older guy at that time. He was not the muscle man that I see he once was by watching this match. But he had such a presence and an aura about him. Even though he was definitely an older wrestler, you could tell by looking at him, you still believe that he could beat the snot out of most guys that he was in the ring with just because he had that presence of just a real butt kicker of a wrestler. So what would have mostly what would have probably been visually ridiculous with someone else, he could still pull off the believable tough guy. But I had never seen Dick the Bruiser in his prime. And his prime was in the 50s and the early 60s. Well, this match is from I think 54 or 55 in Chicago. And he looks like their version of Hulk Hogan. There were not very many muscular guys back in the 1950s. I can think of Bruiser, who I've seen now, Dick the Bruiser. Um, the Mighty Apollo. Uh, Mr. America, Gene Stanley. But, I mean, there was only a handful. And they weren't featured like they would be under Vince McMahon in the 80s. Luthez always described them derisively as plate heads. So being muscular wasn't a guarantee of superstardom like it was in the 80s. But Bruiser could have a credible match with Vern Gagne and you could be scared that your hero Vern Gagne could not overcome this overwhelming physical force that Dick the Bruiser projected. So I will have a link in the show notes. You can go to KenZimmermanJr.com slash episode 20 and there will be a link in the show notes to this particular match. And if you never saw Dick the Bruiser in his prime, you'll probably be surprised as well. And it's not a 
particularly long match. A lot of the matches there are long, are longer than what you're used to today. But I think that they hold up well, and I, I think that they're entertaining. These 20-minute headlock matches and things that people talk about, I don't remember them, and I definitely didn't see them here. So I remember headlock spots at the live matches in St. Louis to work the crowd in that. I don't remember them on televised matches or any of that. So there'll be a link in the show notes. And with that, I think I'm going to close up this week's episode. Come back hopefully in two weeks and Caleb and I will have a new episode for you. And I think on the next podcast, I'm going to talk about what's definitely going to be a book project in the next couple of years. I just have to decide when is the the right time to to work on this one because it will be long. But it's about a world champion who was involved in the double crosses in the 1930s that probably not many people know of or talk about today. And that's because he also died in the 1930s of some kind of a freak. It wasn't an illness. It was probably the result of a ring injury. And it was kind of a freak one. And he died at only 36 years of age. And he was a wrestler from Missouri. And we'll uh, focus on a part of his career on the next episode. So hope to see you then. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.